It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, what on earth happened with the Grammys? The viewership just plummeted. I watched a little bit of it on Sunday night. Like, it's tough for these award shows because you don't have a live audience. But the Grammys had, you know, Trevor Noah hosting and Taylor Swift, Billie Eilish, Harry Styles. A lot of live performances done out in the open in L.A., in the open air. And um, a lot of publicity because most of the awards were won by women. Um, And yet the early numbers showing that only 7.8 million viewers watched this thing on Sunday night. Last year, it was 18.7 million. I mean, that is an absolute collapse. Now, why is this? Is it because of the pandemic? Is it because it's not as interesting to watch a show unless you have cutaways and a live audience cheering and booing and laughing at the jokes and all that? Is it because not that many new albums were, I still call them albums, were released uh, because artists couldn't get into the studio? I don't know, but this is kind of a harbinger of a warning sign for the Oscars. You know, the Academy Award nominations were just released yesterday. And most of the reaction I've seen online from people I know is like, what? I never heard of any of these movies or heard of one of them. Now, clearly, uh, 2020 was not a great year for movies because not many movies could be made. Not many movies could be made at all because of all the COVID concerns. So it's almost like whoever wins, I mean, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, getting nominated. Uh, I don't want to say it goes down with an asterisk, but in a normal year, you'd have a lot of more well-known movies with big stars, and that clearly is not the case. One uh, little footnote on that, the most nominations by a significant margin, 35, I believe, the number was one to Netflix, which is not only you know, a record for a streaming service, but you know, more than any of the studios. But again, a very weird year. Uh, you know, I meant to mention this the other day that Carl Hyacin, uh, the famous Florida novelist who writes all these colorful books about the crazy, uh, crime-ridden, bizarro world culture of Florida, uh, has just written his last column for the Miami Herald after decades as a newspaper columnist. And in that farewell piece, uh, he had some depressing things to say about journalism. He said, retail corruption is now a breeze. Since newspapers and other media can no longer afford enough reporters to cover all the key government meetings. You wake up one day and they're bulldozing 20 acres of pine at the end of your block to put up a supermarket. Your kids ask what's going on and you can't tell them because you don't have a clue. Uh, Hyacin, who, by the way, started as a city desk reporter at the Herald back in 1976, um, writes, That's what happens when hometown journalism fades. Newspaper stories don't get reported until it's too late after the deal's gone down. Most local papers are gasping for life, and if they die, it will be their readers who lose the most. And I can tell you somebody, you know, used to cover newspapers for a living, that, um, you know, the Miami Herald, like the Boston Globe, uh, Chicago Tribune, um, San Francisco Chronicle, you know, used to be a great newspaper, you know, with national ambitions and a big Washington bureau. And obviously, like lots of other papers, it has shrunk and it mostly concentrates now on its backyard. And that's a survival strategy. Uh, For example, you have this hedge fund uh, called Alden, uh, which has just made a deal to buy Tribune Publishing, uh, which publishes a lot of big papers, not just the Chicago Tribune, but the Orlando Sentinel, and um, so some papers in Florida as well, uh, Baltimore Sun. 
And there's a local Maryland uh, wealthy guy, as the chairman of Choice Hotels named Stuart Bainham, who was going to, the Tribune was going to spin off the Baltimore Sun and let Bainham buy it. And he was, you know, going to run it either as a nonprofit or just, you know, local ownership. And local ownership is good because you care about the community. The problem with Alden is it owns all these newspapers. And what it does is it comes in, slashes the staff in order to squeeze more profits out of the papers. And it's a, it's a depressing um, cycle where then there's less reason to subscribe, less reason to buy the paper or even to subscribe uh, to the website. But Alden then asked a lot of money of Bainham. Um, he balked, and now he wants to buy all of Tribune Publishing and maybe spin off some of the papers to local ownership. That'd be great, but it's all very complicated. And the fact is, the few profit-minded businessmen or women want to own local newspapers these days because the business model has collapsed, as Carl Hyacin is lamenting. All right, I got a lot to cover today, so let's uh, strap in the seatbelts here and start with number one, a huge massive, troubling, embarrassing correction by the Washington Post having to do with Donald Trump. And this is familiar to me because there were there have been a lot of corrections over the last four years having to do with then-President Donald Trump. Uh, there was one from CNN. Uh, there was one from ABC. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And I often would say, either write about this or say on the air, that isn't it interesting, um, there was Lawrence O'Donnell had to issue a correction. You know, people would just run with stuff that they did not have nailed down because Trump, obviously, in their view, was, was so evil, was such a despot uh, that, uh, you know, you could almost say anything about him. And it was probably true, you know, and so stories that, that weren't properly sourced or relied on one source um, Sometimes, I mean, there was there was a lot of good reporting in the Trump years, too. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But there were a lot of huge, high-profile mistakes by big news organizations that should know better. Uh, because if you're going to aim at the president of the United States, and you're going to make a serious allegation about the president of the United States, and the same would be true in local journalism if you're going to have a tough story on the governor or the mayor, you better get it right. Because if you get it wrong... Um, especially if the politician is Donald Trump, I mean, you're going to get a fierce counterattack. And if it's a story that you have to retract or run an editor's note and apologize for, I mean, that undermines your brand. It undermines journalism. It undermines all of journalism uh, because all these stories, you know, that would get picked up and then suddenly every network is running it. And they don't have the sources. They don't have the documents. They're just saying so-and-so reported. Uh, and this is what Trump often complained about when he talked about fake news. Now, I didn't like the term fake news. I didn't like when he went off on enemy, enemy of the American people. But sometimes these big organizations that, you know, whose business models had become anti-Trump handed him a political gift by running a half-baked story that had to be retracted. So that's the context for me talking now about this Washington Post correction. So just to set the stage here. You'll recall that uh, in the final weeks of his presidency, when Trump was still furiously trying to overturn the election, he had the infamous phone call, which we have audio on, we know what was said, with Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. And um, that was the one where he said, if you, I just need you to find 11,000, however many ballots, to overturn Biden's victory, a narrow victory, uh, in Georgia. 
And the mere fact that he was placing this call to Georgia's Secretary of State, who pushed back, um, was evidence that, you know, uh, the lawsuits were failing. Uh, the Supreme Court wasn't taking the cases. Uh, his own Justice Department found no evidence of widespread fraud. And so President Trump was calling state officials, who happened to be Republicans, as well as state legislators, trying to get them to not certify the election results. And all that helped lead to January 6th in order to get them through the use of political muscle to not certify his election in enough states that perhaps he had, a, you know, it was a dream, it was a fantasy of overturning the election. So that story about the Trump call to the Secretary of State was accurate because we had the video. The video was obtained and we could all listen to it and reach our own conclusions. It sounded like the president was strong-arming a Republican top official to try to flip the state of Georgia, which, of course, was ultimately unsuccessful. And even if he had done it, it wouldn't have been nearly enough electoral votes to change the outcome of the election because he also lost Pennsylvania, because he also lost Wisconsin, uh, because he also lost Arizona, and you know the, the list by now. But the Washington Post did a story back in January about a different phone call. And I, I take the time to set this up because the two have gotten conflated. Um, now, this was a call not to Raffensperger himself, but to his lead election investigator, a woman named Frances Watson. And the Post reported the following, that in a call to this lead investigator in Georgia, uh, that President Trump had told her to find the fraud. That was the quote. Find the fraud in the Georgia presidential election results. And that if she did that, she would be a, quote, national hero. So that's what the Post reported last month. Uh, lots of news organizations picked it up. ABC, NBC, uh, Vox, CNN uh, also cited an unnamed source in reporting on that story. Well, it turns out that that story was wrong. And the reason that we know it was wrong is that some days ago, the Wall Street Journal obtained an audio recording of this other call, not the call to Raffensperger, but the call to one of his top aides. And it didn't contain anything about find the fraud. And it didn't contain the phrase national hero. So the Washington Post had to publish this. Correction. Two months after publication of this story, the Georgia Secretary of State released an audio recording. Oh, it was released? Okay. Uh, of President Donald Trump's December phone call with the state's top election investigator. The recording revealed that the Post misquoted Trump's comments on the call based on information provided by a source. Trump did not tell the investigator to find the fraud or she would be a national hero. Instead, Trump urged the investigator to scrutinize ballots in Fulton County, Georgia, asserting she would find, quote, dishonesty there. He also told her she had, quote, the most important job in the country right now. The headline and text of the story have been corrected to remove quotes misattributed to Trump. Okay, that is a really bad and embarrassing correction to have to run. Now, you could say, well, I, you know, what the hell is the President of the United States doing calling a Georgia elections investigator and saying she would find dishonesty and she has the most important job? You know, it's different ways, uh, but, but less, much less inflammatory ways, much less incriminating ways of trying to... Um, get the same result. Now, some people on the right have conflated the two and said, okay, Trump never said this to Raffensperger. Well, that's wrong. That part of the story is not effective. But this is the problem. 
when you undermine part of your reporting and have to admit, oops, sorry, folks, we got it wrong, you also are undermining the larger story. Now, long statement from Donald Trump, who said, well, I appreciate the Washington Post correction, uh, which makes the original Georgia witch hunt story a non-story. The original story was a hoax right from the very beginning. There's an ongoing investigation in Georgia, he said. Former president said that uh, the press in the United States leans one way. More quotes from the Trump statement. You will notice that establishment media errors, omissions, mistakes, and outright lies always slant one way against me and against Republicans. Meanwhile, stories that hurt Democrats or undermine their narratives are buried, ignored, or delayed until they can do the least harm, for example, after an election is over. Um, and then he throws in something about the vaccine. You know, the, the vaccine wasn't really uh, celebrated by the press until after he was out of office. In any event, I thank the Washington Post for the correction. Well, you know, Trump is right. Trump is right. Most of the mistakes made about him lean one way. And this is the latest example. And I got to highlight it. Um, the Post did some very good reporting on Donald Trump. But something like this undermines it and it makes everybody look bad. And then CNN has now belatedly corrected the story that it did following up on the Post story saying its own source had confirmed it. So maybe there was one source giving bad information to more than one outlet. But if you don't have a transcript and you don't have the audio and you're relying on a source to describe it and you use quotation marks, you're taking a risky bet that that source has firsthand knowledge of what you're reporting. And if the source doesn't have firsthand knowledge, who ends up looking bad? Nobody knows who the anonymous source is because the source is anonymous. You've protected that person's identity. You look bad. Journalism looks bad. And that's why I am leading the podcast with this. Story number two, Joe Biden and the border. Now, this is an example of good journalism. Happens to be the same paper, Washington Post, a very fair piece about Biden's border crisis, which, of course, the administration refuses to call a crisis, but it obviously is a crisis. It leads off with a Democrat, moderate Texas Democrat named Congressman Henry Cuellar, whose district is right on the border, as you might imagine. He isn't happy with how President, Biden, how President Biden's team has responded to the surge of migrants and, of course, all those unaccompanied minors. Quote from Cuellar, his people need to do a better job of listening to those of us who have done this before. Meanwhile, not surprisingly, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy went to the border on Monday. He's slamming Biden. There's no other way to claim it than a Biden border crisis, he said in El Paso. Uh, and look, I understand that Kevin McCarthy is going to use this as a political issue. He has every right to do that. Now, were there a lot of quotes from Kevin McCarthy during the Trump administration when you had the kids separated from their parents, when you had the migrant families being held in horrible conditions, uh, when you had a version of this problem and the media were sort of piling on the Trump administration, did Kevin McCarthy go out and say, you know what, President Trump's done a pretty lousy job on this and he needs to do better. If he did, somehow it escaped my motives. But nevertheless, that's the way politics works. And when the opposition party is in power, you pile on. But the point is, and the point of the story is, that Biden, uh, by taking a softer approach to immigration, by not turning away as many migrant families at the border, but not having a good plan to house them, uh, take care of them, especially in the COVID era, and especially to all the minors, um, has handed the Republicans a pretty big weapon. And the media, after a slow start, I think, are starting to cover this aggressively. So uh, Cuellar just comes out and says it. The Republicans will turn around and use this for the political weapon against the Democrats, that we're weak on the border, we're not doing enough, we're letting everybody in. 
I've been warning the party administration, don't let this get out of hand because all you're going to do is you're going to give Republicans an issue. By the way, you're also going to create a huge national problem. And so the Post says uh, Biden faces a growing political threat from the upheaval at the border and is drawing, act, uh, drawing criticism excuse me, from across the spectrum. Centrist Democrats are nervous about attacks, casting them as soft on border security. Liberals and immigration activists are sounding alarms about how migrants are treated, as well they should. And Republicans are increasingly laying the groundwork for immigration-centric attacks in the midterm elections. Now, there's a couple of reasons the Republicans are doing that. One is, you know, it's a good issue for them. Immigration was a very, very uh, effective and emotional issue when Donald Trump used it. Remember, he campaigned 2016. going to build the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. Well, he didn't build most of the wall. And Mexico, of course, never paid for it. But nevertheless, it struck a nerve because a lot of Americans care about illegal immigrants, particularly those who come here. Sometimes they commit crimes. Not the vast majority, but sometimes they commit crimes, as Donald Trump said when he came down the escalator. Um, and also there's a general resentment that why are they able to take jobs that could be done by Americans? Well, Americans don't want to do some of the more menial jobs and, and them getting government benefits. So Biden comes along and he's got a more compassionate approach, you know. Uh, he's proposed comprehensive immigration reform. Is it going to get through the Senate? I doubt it. But in that sense, he'd be no different than Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George W. Bush, all of whom tried to come up with some kind of workable compromise on immigration reform. So McCarthy says the security of our nation, our border is first and foremost the responsibility of our president. It's more than a crisis. This is human heartbreak. Well, I would just add it was pretty heartbreaking, too, uh, what the Trump administration did on the border, especially all those kids separated from the parents. But if you're not going to do that, and you're not going to turn them away when they're seeking asylum, at least not in as large numbers. What happened is, I mean, the number of minors coming to the border is well over 3,000. Now, you've tripled it. Um, and here's a guy who was the, the border commissioner during President Obama's first term. His name is Alan Burson. He was a, a, a commissioner of border and public safety. When you deliver mixed messages, the migrants and smugglers hear what they want to hear. They're saying the border isn't open, but in fact, for unaccompanied children and families with children under six, the border is open. You simply can't thread the needle in messaging. And that's a former Obama administration official. Uh, moving right along here, I guess the administration is now planning through FEMA to use the Dallas Convention Center as a place to temporarily house. That's obviously not a permanent solution temporarily house these 3,000-plus minors. Some of them have been put into a crowded tent where some are sleeping on the floor, according to the Associated Press. Journalists, meanwhile, have not been allowed to visit any of these facilities. Even the Trump administration eventually allowed that. I assume the Biden administration will as well. Uh, story number three, uh, National Review editor Rich Lowry writing about this very, these very issues, but he starts out by basically making the case, this is his view, that Biden has spending too much time blaming Trump. Uh, and he doesn't start out with the border. He starts out with vaccines. And here's his lead. Listening to President Biden and much of his team, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Biden had to conjure the vaccines out of nowhere because the Trump administration in its callousness and incompetence chose to sit on its hands. Uh, gratitude isn't a Biden strong suit. 
He and his officials have blamed Trump in two areas where they inherited success. So start with the vaccine. Biden talks about the mess he inherited. Vice President Harris, in many ways, we're starting from scratch on something that's been raging for almost a year, talking about the virus. That was not true. Uh, Anthony Fauci knocked that down. Uh, the Trump administration had contracts, Lowry reminds us, for 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, 100 million doses of the Moderna vaccine, 100 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, 800 million overall. On the last day of the Trump administration, a million and a half people were vaccinated, which put Biden on the pace to easily achieve his supposedly showy goal of 100 million vaccinations in 100 days, which, by the way, we'll reach, I think, in a relatively uh, few days. Um, and, you know, Lowry says, look, Biden deserves credit for ramping up more production, facilitating wider distribution, and that's true. And finally, when it was sort of too late, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, and others said, yeah, Trump deserves credit. So does Biden. Why is that so difficult? Well, the counterargument is, you know, Biden's not going to say anything nice about Trump because Trump hasn't even acknowledged the legitimacy of his presidency, never conceded the election, um, still goes around saying the election was stolen. And I get that. But still, he could take the higher road and say, Donald Trump did some good things. He mishandled COVID, Biden could say, but he got Operation Warp Speed going. But they, they don't want to do it. They're really grudging about it. So the second part of this goes back to the border. Um, here I, I differ with Rich on, to some extent. Uh, Lowry saying uh, Biden's begun to dismantle the policies that Trump put in place to control the migrant crisis of 2018 to 2019. As the numbers predictably surge again, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has absurdly called out Trump for having dismantled our nation's immigration system in its entirety. And Nancy Pelosi says what the administration inherited is a broken system at the border. To the contrary, says Lowry, Biden has done the breaking. Well, look, um, what the Trump administration did at the border was a big mess. Did they finally fix it? Yeah. Was it a kind of a heartless approach that resulted in a lot of human misery, a lot of human suffering, and a lot of human damage, and, and the breaking up of some families? Yes, you got to point that out. But at the same time, um, Biden comes in with this sending more liberal signals, a more liberal approach, and what happens? The traffic is surging, and even liberals are acknowledging that. It's clear that there's no easy way out right now for the Biden administration. They don't quite know what to do. Any solution is going to take time. Uh, but it's equally clear. I mean, I don't think Joe Biden ran against Donald Trump on immigration and border policies. And it's immediately, you know, cut off funding for the wall, which mostly the sections that got built were just sections that were being repaired. So I don't really agree that he needs to thank Donald Trump for what he did. He needed to take a different approach, but he needed to think through the different approach he was taking. And right now, it's not working. There's just no doubt about it. And that's why you're seeing more stories like this Washington Post, Post story. Last week, it was the New York Times that actually, I think, started a wave of critical coverage by obtaining documents showing the tripling of minors, migrant kids, crossing the border and that has fueled the current crisis. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number four. There is a reason that Andrew Cuomo has not resigned as governor of New York, despite the fact that Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand and AOC and Bill de Blasio and the majority of the state's congressional delegation and uh, Democrats who control both chambers of the state legislature 
who have started an impeachment investigation in the assembly are all want him out of there. The reason he has been able to hang on, and I believe will continue to hang on at least as this investigation runs its course, and here it is. It's captured, crystallized really, in a Siena College poll that came out yesterday. Only 35% of New Yorkers in this survey said he should quit. Now, if you're the third term governor of New York and more than a third of the voters want you out, that's not great. But it's very different than this sort of political stampede by his own party to get him out of there. Uh, more New Yorkers than not are willing to say, let him stay in the job for now. Now, the details here is also that his favorability rating, as you might imagine, given the utter daily pounding that Cuomo has taken, both on the half dozen sexual harassment accusers, uh, all the news stories about the toxic and bullying culture, as well as the nursing home scandal, uh, in just one month went down from 56% to 43% approval, one of the lowest points of his decade in office. Well, you know, for some politicians, 43% approval, not horrible, but by Cuomo standards, that is quite a significant drop. But um, only 35% say he should quit now. At the same time, only 34% of those in this poll said they would support him if he runs for a fourth term next year. I don't see how he can run for a fourth term next year. For him to be able to serve out his term and then sort of declare victory um, would be an accomplishment given all of the accusations and allegations swirling around him. Um, and I think that's probably a more realistic goal for him. Now, he may not survive. Uh, this investigation may come out by the state attorney general and, and the mounting pressure in those polls could flip. But right now, uh, more New Yorkers than not are saying that he should remain as a governor. Meanwhile, as an example of the continuing bad publicity, the, the state investigation of the harassment allegations, uh, Charlotte Bennett, for example, according to her lawyer, uh, testified for several hours, provided detailed information about the sexually hostile work environment the governor fostered in both his Manhattan and Albany, Albany offices and his deliberate attempt excuse me, his deliberate effort to create rivalries and tension among female staffers on whom he bestowed attention, said the lawyer for Charlotte Bennett. And her lawyer also said that calling to Charlotte Bennett, she's the one, you may recall, spoke to CBS's Nora O'Donnell, who was the first to go on, uh, on the record in an interview with the New York Times. She also told state investigators that Andrew Cuomo is obsessed with his hand size and what the large size of his hands meant to staff, according to one of his accusers. I don't know what to make of that, but it's the kind of, you know, tabloid sizzling detail that generates uh, a lot of headlines. And finally, to add to the embarrassing revelations here, Karen Hinton. Now, she is the one who Cuomo has denied her account that 20 years ago they had a reconciliation meeting in a hotel room and he hugged her uh, in, in an inappropriate way. Uh, she's also went to work for Bill de Blasio, who hates Cuomo. And so Cuomo himself, in a statement, has said that, you know, she's a political adversary. Anyway, she said on an interview in, uh, in an interview with WMYC Radio, he approached me, embraced me too tightly, too long, and was aroused felt extremely uncomfortable and actually shocked. 
Nothing had ever happened that way between the two of us. So I just tell you this in the interest of your complete understanding of what the governor faces in the tabloid environment of New York. And finally, number five, I meant to get to this yesterday, it's popped up in my Twitter feed. Sarah Silverman, uh, who makes no bones about being a very liberal comedian who has, you know, done ads or at least made postings on behalf of Democrats, hated Donald Trump and all that. Um, she has a podcast and there was an Instagram video based on her podcast. And in this podcast, she said something that's starting to get a little bit of attention. And I'm going to read it to you with a slight uh, cleaning up of language, shall we say. Sarah Silverman basically seems fed up with the Democratic Party. She says, it's the absolutistness of the party I am in that is such a turnoff to me. It's so effing elitist. You know, for something called progressive, it allows for zero progress. It's all or nothing. She goes on to say, I don't think I want to be associated with any party anymore. It comes with too much baggage. Every party, it comes with so much effing baggage that no ideas can be taken to face value. And without ideas, what are we? Without a common truth, how can we talk about it? You know, Republicans might hear an idea that they would totally agree with, but if it comes from AOC, then they hate it. And of course, you know, to be honest, she says, when I hear an idea that comes from a Republican, it's suspect to me. So this is really interesting. She's taking on the tribal nature of politics. She's taken on her own side. She's obviously been a lifelong Democrat. She's taken on the fact that compromise is a dirty word to large elements of both parties, which is why nothing gets done. And then if you say, okay, I'll go along and I'll agree to, I'll get 75% I want what I want and I'll give 25% to the other side, you know, you're a wimp, you're a loser. If you're a Republican, you're a rhino. If you're a dem, you're not woke. And she says, how can you ever make any progress um, if parties take such an absolutist view? And she really, I mean, this is a brave thing for somebody who's in Hollywood to be calling out her own party. And it struck a nerve with me because I don't like either party. You know, that's why I'm a journalist. And, you know, I sometimes I get heat, like, how can you not agree with X? Whether it's one side or the other, how can you criticize Trump? How can you criticize Biden? How can you not give Biden credit? How can you not give Trump credit? You know, when you're sort of a journalist who tries to be out down the middle, who believes in like what's good for the country, and sometimes that takes compromise, even though everybody in Washington seems to hate each other these days, and the media are so polarized, you know, you get whacked a lot for, you know, not being on the team. Well, I don't want to be on the team. I don't be on any team. I'm on the journalism team which is not that popular either for reasons that I explained at the top of the podcast. But a little tip of the hat to Sarah Silverman for coming out and taking on, you know, she's on camera, you know, she does it in a kind of a funny way, but she's calling out the Democratic Party for being too purist, not being willing to compromise. And then she's saying Republicans do it too. And that's why I think, so of course the right loves this and is playing it up, but really there's a message to both parties here. Um, and if more celebrities would be less knee-jerk, because most of the celebrities, particularly in the entertainment world, are totally Democrats and hated Trump, and they might not have loved Biden initially because they wanted Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, but they love him now because he's president, and 
they see him as a, such a welcome contrast to the what what uh, what Biden calls the previous guy, the former guy. Excuse me, the former guy, uh, the former guy number forty-five. Um, but I just struck a nerve with me, and I thought you might want to hear it. I'd love to hear what you think about it. If you want to leave a comment on Apple iTunes, you can also get us at uh, on your Amazon device and Amazon Music, Google Podcast, FoxNewsPodcast.com. That's all, folks. See you tomorrow with more Buzz News. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.